Well, good evening, everyone. Oh, they talk. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Well, we, tonight we're going to continue our series in Matthew with the theme of the king of God's kingdom. And in particular, we've got a rather ringy microphone. Is that felt? That's better. Okay, that's better. Um, yeah, and we're going to look at uh, what that means for Jesus to be king. So before we move on, let's just uh, bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for your spirit who dwells within us. And we pray that your spirit may uh, open our hearts and minds tonight, that we may learn more of you and of your place in our lives. And we do thank you for the passages we're looking at and we pray that, uh, yeah, well, uh, they'll take on a fresh meaning for us tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's see if this thing's going to work for me. Uh, which slide did you put in? No, you didn't change it. <laughs> um, the question I was going to ask is, what do all these people have in common? Any guesses? They're all leaders. They're all heads of state. Um, I was trying to get a photo of a picture of kings and queens. And here's a bit of trivia for you. Did you know that there are 43 countries with a king or queen as their head of state? 43 countries today have a king or queen. Actually, there are only about 28 kings and queens because the Queen of England, uh, Queen, queen Elizabeth, is actually the queen of no less than 16 countries. However, when we talk about kings and queens, what sort of image comes to mind? Is it like the brutal and corrupt kings that were portrayed in things like the Game of Thrones? Not reckoning when we actually watched that. Or perhaps we think back to earlier times when kings exercised absolute rule over their people and were generally the strong men or sometimes women of the nation. Perhaps someone like Henry VIII or the Spanish and French kings of the 16th and 17th centuries. Those kings of former times exercised absolute power and were often judge, jury and executioner. Well, perhaps our image of a king or queen is that of a fairy tale kind of person. Someone wise, benevolent, kind, loving, warm, accepting. Or perhaps the picture we generally have of a king or queen is of someone sitting on a throne with a crown on their heads and surrounded by various attendants and guards and associated with a whole lot of pomp and ceremony. Well, I think in today's world it's unusual for a king to have absolute power. They are more often than not subject to the directions of their parliaments. And kings and queens today are generally figureheads who perform largely ceremonial roles. Just for example, Australia is a monarchy. Our head of state is Queen Elizabeth II. And her power rests in the fact that all the laws that govern our country are authorised or signed off 
by the Queen or her um, nominated representatives. Uh, for Australian law, it's the Governor-General. For state law, it's the Governors. They are the Queen's representatives. And our elected representatives to Parliament are essentially only advisers to the Queen and they have the responsibility of governing in accordance to the laws of the land. So how do we personally regard the Queen? How do we see the Queen as our Queen? Some people have a great respect and admiration for her. And there seems to be a bizarre fascination with the activities of various members of her family from time to time. However, we really see her as someone who has authority over us. And in this regard, she's probably viewed similarly to the way we view our politicians, whose behaviour and credibility are often questioned and whose authority is also often questioned or challenged. We tend to have a fairly low view of kings and queens, mainly due to how they've acted throughout history. And also, they are very distant from us. You know, they, they live in this sort of bubble which is very rarefied and it's hard to relate to them as, as people. And I think this is why we struggle to correctly understand the concept of Jesus as our king. So when we refer to Jesus as our king, what does this mean? And what does this mean for us personally? Well, to help us, we're going to look at three episodes in Jesus' ministry where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Now, the reason for this is that as we consider Jesus as the Son of God, we gain some insight into what it means for Jesus to be our King. So, but Jesus is not often referred to as King in the Gospels, and probably because it had all sorts of negative connotations with and associations with earthly, earthly rulers of the time. However, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, we find the Magi, or wise men, journeyed a long way, and they came looking for the one who had been born the King of the Jews. And as you know, they went to Herod, the puppet king of the Romans at the time. They thought, yeah, that's a natural place to start, but Herod didn't have a clue, didn't have a clue where to look. So the Magi went off and they were led, as you know, by the star to where Jesus was born. But it's not until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that he was greeted by a massive crowd of people. They were laying their cloaks on the ground. He was riding a donkey and they waving palm leaves and laying them down on the road. And what were they singing out? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This was the... Messiah, they hoped, would free them from Roman rule. They had great hopes. They'd been waiting a long time for this Messiah who'd been promised hundreds of years beforehand. And here he was. He'd been performing miracles and teaching the way of God throughout the countryside. This is our king, they thought. But less than a week later, we find him standing before Pilate who asked him this question, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And finally, 
the sign that was fixed on the cross above Jesus' head read, the king of the Jews. The Jewish elders didn't want that sign up there. It was an affront to them. And the sign, when they put a sign like that up on a cross, it usually stated the reason these people were being executed. <clears throat> but in this case, it was probably Pilate's way of mocking the Jewish elders. So in what ways does Jesus demonstrate his kingly nature? So it's helpful to look at times when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God because this gives us a few insights into the nature of Jesus as King. And the first passage I want to look at is Matthew 8, 24, 8, <coughs> pardon me, 28 to 34, where Jesus casts demons out of two men. Sorry, it's a bit hard to read, but there's a reference you can look up in your Bibles. Now, the... Um, Jesus and his disciples had travelled across the Sea of Galilee, had sailed in a small fishing boat to the other side, and they landed on the southeast um, part of the lake, or sea, in the region that was called uh, Gedera. And it was a predominantly Gentile or non Jewish area. And here they were confronted by two demon-possessed men who were incredibly strong and violent. They were so dangerous, no one could actually safely pass through that area without fear of being attacked. Now, in the parallel account in Luke 8, Luke only mentions one man, but he tells us that that man wore no clothes, he ran around naked, and he lived among the tombs. And even when he had been restrained by, by chains... He was strong enough to actually break those chains and he fled to, um, to, Luke says, to a solitary place to be alone. So here we have Jesus and the disciples stepping ashore and he was met or confronted by these demon-possessed men who asked him, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Interesting, the demons recognised him as the Son of God. People around him hadn't recognised him, acknowledged him as Son of God. But here the demons, as soon as they laid eyes on Jesus, they knew who he was. In Matthew's account, Jesus doesn't actually answer the, the demons, although in Luke he asks them their name, to which they reply, Legion, because there were many of them. In Luke, the demons beg Jesus repeatedly not to send them into the abyss. And that was the place where Satan and his, and the, his demonic uh, hordes were to be confined in Revelation 9. This is a place the demons obviously feared. And so they begged Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs that was grazing on a nearby hillside. Interesting. Jesus agrees to their request and he simply says, go. And the demons obeyed. They came out of the demon-possessed men and went into the, tip, into the pigs. And what we find next is the herd of pigs just rushed down the, the slope and into the lake where they drowned. Now just to make Q&A a bit easier... Let me say, 
what we are to make of this is very unclear. Pigs were regarded by the Jews as unclean animals and so they were an appropriate place for the demons to go. Oh, no, it's just an image of a possessed pig. Sorry. <laughs> but what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? We're not told. So we'll have to leave that question hanging. However, the main point of this passage is how the demons regarded Jesus. First, they acknowledged him as the Son of God. They recognised him as he truly is. Secondly, they acknowledged his authority. He only uttered one word and they obeyed. They knew he had the power to compel them to do whatever he commanded. These powerful demons who had such absolute control over the possessed men were quaking in their boots, so to speak. There they were before Jesus. They were terrified because they knew, they knew that they would be judged someday and that they would be eventually cast into the abyss where they would suffer torment and torture for eternity. And they were fearful that that day had come for them and they were desperate to find an alternative which Jesus mercifully allowed at this point. And so the point here is that the demons recognised Jesus as the Son of God and they acknowledged him as having absolute authority over them. He was the king, he was the Lord of heaven and the demons obeyed him without question because not only did he have authority, he also had the power to destroy them. Now the second account I want to look at where Jesus is called the Son of God is in Matthew 14. Another familiar passage. Now this account of walking on the water occurs just after Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So there's a big crowd of people. It would have been a very tiring, long day. And so at the end of the day, Jesus tells his disciples to get into a boat, one of these small fishing boats, and sail across to the other side of the lake. Meanwhile, Jesus withdrew to a solitary place to be alone and to pray. Now what happens next is something rather amazing. It was night time. The wind was um, blowing against the, the boat and so the, 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 the disciples were trying to sail into the wind, which is difficult. The water was choppy and rough and so it wasn't a particularly good night to be out in the middle of the lake in the dark. But just before dawn, we're told, and while it was still quite dark, as they were trying to make their way in the boat, they saw this figure walking across the lake on the water. This was new. And this was somewhat unexpected, very unexpected. And at first, they thought they were seeing a ghost. And, quite rightly, as you'd expect, they were absolutely terrified. But as Jesus came closer, he calls out to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. See if that's... Oops, we didn't fix that one, Stu. <laughs> take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. But 
the next thing that happened, and this is where most sermons sort of focus on, is Peter's reaction. You know, impetuous Peter. He calls out to Jesus when he recognises Jesus. He says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus simply says, come. And so Peter, looking at Jesus, climbs out of the boat. And I can imagine that would be a very tentative kind of, let's see how we're doing this, (laughs) as he goes out towards Jesus. But the wind was still blowing, the waves are lapping at his feet, and he turned away from Jesus. He was getting scared. He was kind of overthinking this. Where am I? What am I doing? I should be sinking here. And he was looking around, getting quite fearful. And at that point, he started to sink. And he calls out, Lords, help me, save me. Whereupon Jesus reaches down, grabs him by the hand. Note they were still in the water. Jesus was still there in the water with Peter. And he hauls Peter up and helps him climb into the boat. Two important lessons come out of this account. The first is that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, Jesus is always there with us. Take courage, he says. Don't be afraid. Life can throw up some pretty horrible things at us. But Jesus reminds us that he is there constantly with us. And he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. You know, Jesus always has his hand out to us. It's up to us to take hold of his hand and trust him to see us through the dark times. Secondly, it's imperative that we keep our eyes focused on Jesus because if we don't, if we choose to go our own way and not Jesus' way, if we keep our, don't keep our eyes focused on Jesus, we're very likely to find ourselves in trouble. But the thing I want you to see is the disciples' response. They worshipped Jesus. They fell down and worshipped him. And what did they say? Truly, you are the Son of God. They acknowledged Jesus' power over the created order because as he climbed into the boat, I forgot to say, the wind calmed down. He walked on the water and the wind calmed down as soon as he's with them. The Bible tells us that Jesus created all things. The universe, the world, was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And the disciples must at that point have glimpsed the awesome power of Jesus that created the world and everything in it. The power that Jesus wields, the power that Jesus has, was the power that created the sun, the moon, and all the stars in this universe. This is the power that Jesus has. He is our creator. Make no mistake about it. And no wonder the disciples fell at his feet and worshipped him. Truly, they said, you are the son of God. The last account I want to look at is in Matthew 4. Here we go. Matthew 4. And this occurs after Jesus is baptised and he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days. And it's here, 
after 40 days, when Jesus is weak and hungry, that the devil comes to tempt him. Remember that the devil was cast out of heaven when he sought to um, raise himself up to God's level? He thought he was as good as God, but he was cast down to earth. That was his punishment because he wanted to become like God. So here in the wilderness, the devil's thinking, here's a chance to get back at God. And perhaps even here's a chance to defeat God. So he tempts Jesus three times. And notice that each time the devil addresses Jesus with the words, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. You see, the devil shows that he knows who Jesus was by addressing him this way. The devil also knew that Jesus had power. He had power over creation. Jesus could easily turn the stones into bread. Created the world, the universe. Surely he could change a few rocks into bread. But the, the devil also knew that Jesus, as the king of heaven, could easily summon a legion of angels to keep him from harm if he threw himself off the, t- off the um, highest point of the temple. And the devil also knew that the one thing God wants from us is our love. He wants our adoration. He wants our worship. He wants our praise. That's the thing that we can give God. However, Jesus, despite his weakened and vulnerable state, he rejects the devil's temptations each time simply by quoting scripture. You see, the word of God The scripture is very powerful. And we should take our time, take time to memorize it, learn it, understand it, be able to use it in times of temptation. And as Jesus confronted the devil each time with the word of God, the devil acknowledged the power, the truth of the word. And so he tried a different approach each time. And in the end, Jesus came through. And a side to note from this passage is that the devil can be overcome by Scripture. Indeed, when we are tempted, we need to trust on the promises of God we read in the Bible. Believe in those words. They are powerful words. Believe in the promises of God. He's a promise-making God. He's a promise-keeping God. And he will keep his promises to us. Now, these three passages in which Jesus is called the Son of God reveal to us his authority over the spirit world. It reveals his power over creation and the power and his power and authority that he has over the devil. Which brings us to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, which is where I want to land. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down, notice this, he sat down where? At the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
He's not an attendant to God the Father. He rules with God the Father. He is seated on his throne. It is a position of power and authority. And so, verse 4, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is superior to theirs. (coughs) This is Jesus. Jesus as our risen, exalted Saviour and Lord. This is Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. This is Jesus who is our King. And he has absolute power and ultimate authority to rule over the entire universe. And that includes you and me. So why do we fail to see Jesus like this? Why do we struggle to acknowledge him as our king? I think that it's because of our tarmaged view of the kings of history. I think the people of the New New Testament times had a better idea of what it meant to have Jesus as their king. They revered the memory of godly King David and the wise King Solomon. But they lived a thousand years before the time when this was written, before the time of Jesus. But in New Testament times, the people were more familiar with the despotic Roman emperors who wielded an incredible amount of power. So much so that if people referred to Jesus as their king, it, meant, it could mean torture and even death at the hands of the authorities. Now the use of the word <coughs> king, I think, has fallen out of favour these days. And I think a better word and more familiar term, at least to Christian believers, is that of Lord. Although I think we struggle to fully understand what it means for Jesus to be our Lord. Saviour, yes. We know that Jesus came to earth, he lived, he died on the cross, he rose again. He died for our sins, he is our saviour. But Lord? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of our lives? Are we willing to submit to his absolute rule and authority in our lives? Are we willing to live by his ways as shown in the Bible? Do we turn to him for guidance in all the decisions we make in life, be they small or big? Is Jesus the one we turn to, to refer to, to defer to even? Are we open to his leading and guiding? How do we see Jesus as our king? Do we see him as he is now, seated on a throne in heaven in glory and splendour, surrounded by myriads of angels and and, uh, people worshipping him? Is that how we see Jesus? Or do we regard Jesus something like the spare tyre in a car. We only bring him out in times of trouble or breakdown, when we're desperate and in need of help. Or to use a Michael Mack example, (laughs) I've got to acknowledge my source, is Jesus the pilot of the aeroplane of your life? 
with you sitting there as the co-pilot. Who's in charge? Or are you the pilot of the aeroplane of your life? And Jesus is merely the steward who brings you a cup of coffee when you're tired. We need to constantly remind ourselves of who Jesus is. We need not to limit him. We need to understand his power, his authority over us and over this world ultimately. And we need to worship him. We need to adore him. We need to love him as our Lord and Saviour, as our King. And to see him as Paul uh, writes in 1 Timothy 1.17, as the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, and to him be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. I think there are about four or five sermons in that 25 minutes. Uh, <laughs> so I'll do, you, I'll do my best to answer any questions. How did Jesus survive um, 40 days without any food? Um, I don't know other than say that he did. <laughs> um, he would have had, uh, look, without being silly, he would have uh, probably had something to drink. You can't survive that long without water. But people have been known to survive for 40 days without food, but they're pretty emaciated by the end of it. So, um, yeah. Uh, all I can safely say is he did survive 40 days, but he was in a very weak uh, and vulnerable state when the devil came to tempt him. 